0: Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be speaking with Michael Feld. Michael works with early stage startups and business owners to develop their competitive strategy and improve their brand and market position, as well as growing out their uh, sales team and obtaining more market share. So, today, we're going to cover a a lot of interesting topics such as uh, competitive strategy, about finding your value proposition, and understanding why the total available market is so important and how it could affect your funding. So stay tuned for a great episode with Michael. And before we jump into that, if you're an early stage startup and you're looking to build or define your sales process or you need help defining your value proposition or building your sales team or even getting your first sales, this is what we do at Startup Sales is we help early B2B companies with this. So if you're interested, you could go over to startupsales.io That is StartupSales.io and you can learn more there. Let's get into today's episode with Michael. It's really interesting and has a lot of great information. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to speaking to you.
0: Me too. Absolutely. Let's start with understanding who you are and what your background is.
1: Sure. The company I work for, partner in, is Everett Field Partners. We service mid-size B2B and industrial organizations. The background of myself and my business partner is both hardcore general management in you know, private equity-owned businesses, businesses that are seeking growth or preparing for sale. So that's the, that's the focus for us.
0: So pretty much the dream of every early stage startup. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We we
1: get to work in that exciting space where people have got an idea or a vision and they've got something that they want to bring to life. It very often needs funding and really good quality thinking to help bring it to life. As you know, the you know the, the failure rate in startups is an eye-watering sort of um, hard fact, and we try and help organisations avoid the obstacles and navigate through to a successful launch of their vision. Absolutely.
0: So, what's one of the biggest problems that you're you're coming across when working with the earlier stage companies? It's a
1: good problem to have and it's an excessive enthusiasm and a lack of facts that, you know, the the, the challenge that we have is that the startup space is is littered with um, success stories and these sorts of things so people see all the big wins and the big the big launches and these types of things and they think that it's easy to replicate and we love that enthusiasm, we love that energy. We seek the permission of the people we work with to be just incredibly straightforward with them and for them to not take offence you know, the issue is very often that they've really got their numbers wrong. And if they've got their numbers wrong around market size, market potential, winnable market, that's going to affect the way investors will view their business and view the credibility of the founders. So it doesn't matter what we link it to and whether we link it to the likelihood of success or whether or or their reputation with investors, they need to have their numbers absolutely spot on and they need to have their evidence to prove that there's a market for what they're trying to do. I think the The problem that we see most often is the "build it and they will come" problem. That people think because it's a great idea and they like it and they like it and they're technically savvy and enthusiastic that everybody else will feel the same way. And you know, we're kind of here to to dispel that myth,
0: (laughs) to pop their bubble.
1: Yeah, in the nicest possible way. We do that in a caring and empathetic way. But it's much better that we do that rather than when they're going to you know try and seek uh, funding for their business and they find that there's you know gaping holes in their thinking.
0: So how do you, if I'm an early stage founder, how do I limit myself and how do I keep my numbers realistic?
1: Look, it's a great question. An example is we worked with an organization that was providing software, training software for education here in Australia, and they built their market size model on the total number of teachers and teaching professionals in Australia, and they formed a view as to what percentage of that teaching community they'd be able to have signed on to this software. And a very simple set of research with the schools and the school leadership and teaching community, the way they viewed software was like that, was that they really only wanted about one third of the teaching community at any one stage using that because of competing priorities within the school, because of costs. And if they had one third of the teaching community, that school would consider itself completely tapped out in that particular investment. And it was a simple insight and it was one that was easy, easily uncovered through some research, but it was one that the, the founders had overlooked. And I would say it was a a, you know, a rush of enthusiasm, but it was a, a critical insight for them to build their market model. And particularly given that they'd already gone through a couple of um, rounds of funding on, that, on those numbers.
0: How does it affect the funding? Because if you go to VCs and tell them, hey, we've got a market size of 5,000 people and then... Oh that's down to 1500 now. How does that affect
1: Look, I have to say straightforwardly that you know funders lose uh, confidence quite quickly when they uncover these types of things. They want to be working with real numbers. They want to be they want to have faith and confidence in the founders and the people that they're that they're backing, that they've done their work. And what we find is that if you do that properly, you get really good support from the funders. And if you if you don't, that that
0: support can drop very quickly. And that's like after the fact. But what happens for if you're wanting to go for a new round as well? Like you just raise your seed and then you want to go to, to an A. But look, I think it changes the valuations. One of the things that getting your numbers
1: right and being able to prove from an evidence basis rather than you know a hope or respiration basis, being able to prove the winnable market for your particular uh, business completely changes the valuation on the business and it changes the amount of funding that's available to you. And that's a that's a really healthy thing if you if you can negotiate, you know, higher volumes at, at a better valuation, that's good for the founders.
0: Yeah. And so when you're when you're building out these these estimates on your market size, the example you gave with the teachers is great, but not all the times will you be able to get a golden nugget piece of insight like that. So how do you build them so that you're you're creating a safety net? Sure. Look, you're right.
1: Most of the organisations that we work with are working in categories where there isn't readily available market or industry information on their market size. And there's a range of investigations that need to be done. And you're really building up. You're starting with known, with verifiable numbers. You're starting with numbers which might be from an industry association or a government body, or you might We did a project recently in print and marketing, and we used some numbers from the U.S., and we built a model for Australia on some insights from the U.S. market. So you're you're right. There's often a bit of work to be done. There's a a number of research firms here that will publish top-level industry reports, research reports. That's just a starting point. There's still a whole series of interrogations that need to happen across market utilization, competitive landscape, customer buying behavior, you know, competitive tensions and these sorts of things. But you really start with a fact base. You build that, you, you surround that fact base with sensible assumptions that would pass muster by a third party. You pressure test those back with the customer or back with somebody from that industry category and you prove it up enough that it it just has to pass master from, from an independent view that they go, I get those numbers, I get how you built them, I get how you arrived at that. And that is sufficiently strong for us to say, we're going to go ahead on that basis.
0: Yeah. So you said like you need somebody third party to kind of be a devil's advocate and really challenge you on those numbers.
1: Yeah, look, we never want to take away the enthusiasm of the, the startup space. It's a wonderful space and it's and it's just full of energized people who are working incredibly hard and you never want to to try and destroy that. But what you do want to do is you want to arm them with information that's going to give them a much clearer set of decision points around how they should drive their business forward. So we talked earlier about its impact on funding, but the other major impact that it has is on the management team and on the founders themselves. It actually gives them a very clear navigation map to say, we actually need to steer our business in this direction because the market assessment tells us there's a stronger market here than there. So rather than you know, having to, you know, pivot and tilt all the all, all the time based on the thing you're working on, not really working the way you wanted to. It's much more interesting if you can find out that data, understand that market, and then build your, make your business decisions, your investment decisions and your marketing decisions, and even your resourcing decisions around pursuing a market that, that you know you can capture.
0: Yeah. What other aspects of the competitive landscape, your available market should you be looking at? besides just the number of people to be selling to? Sure.
1: Look, the number of people, like the market size is one thing, but customer buying behavior is another. And I think the one that is overlooked, and I think it's a term that gets misused, is really defining your value proposition. And your value proposition isn't a tagline or a a glib statement around the benefits of the product. The value proposition is, a, is an integrated set of statements and insights and understanding of, it, of your customer and proving up how, what, your, what your product is, what your service is, proving up in a way that you can communicate to them clearly how your product's going to actually benefit them. I think that the competitive landscape, the other piece is it's not always the obvious competitors that you're competing with. Often you're, there might be a small unknown competitor in the market and a really good look at them, and this happens quite often for us, and I guess it, it is in the startup space, that you, we'll look at a competitor who our customer has considered to be really not that threatening, and we'll find out that they were recently acquired by private equity or there was a recent investment in them. It wasn't announced, it wasn't public, but we find out that there's a different type of backing. And then we look at the behaviour of the people who've placed investment in that business. So we look at what they've done with other similar businesses. We look at just their their MO as an investment organisation and we form a view as to how they're likely to treat the acquisition that they've made and how that would change the competitive landscape. So sometimes it's the invisible competitors. The one I think that people fail to consider is apathy. One of the things we're competing against is the apathy of the customer, that they're they're absolutely spoilt for choices. There's thousands of organisations competing for their attention. They've got no compelling reason to, to buy your product or service, no matter how fantastic it might seem to you. And how do you construct that meaningful value proposition? How do you reach them in a way that is on their terms and is at an ex- it, an acceptable cost per reach or acquisition cost for your new customers. So th- those are some of the things that we look at. The competitive landscape is, I, I think, less less important when somebody's at that startups phase if they if they have genuinely got something new and different to take to the market. If they're trying to go into an established market, they're trying to get into a well-established market like you know hospitality or travel or something like that then there's a lot more work to be done to say, where is the market that we're actually going to occupy? And you're really triangulating between your organisational capability and point of difference. What are we bringing to market? What is the size of the market and how is it segmented and who are the customers and how do they buy? And then what are the competitive crosswinds that are going to interfere with our ambitions to capture that market? So I think if you triangulate between those three places, you actually start to get a much more realistic view of your value
0: proposition. Interesting. One of the things that you said is about the value proposition, I think, is a third thing that could look, cause you to lose lose clients to competitors that are maybe indirect competitors is not having a clear value prop or not conveying that message across clearly. So many times I've seen companies that that don't describe what they do well enough in a way that makes sense for the potential buyers that they think that we're the same as competition, but we're not the same as the competition.
1: Look, it's so true. A sort of an example of that, I'm an industry awards judge on a whole series of programs here in Australia. So I read submissions from people. What's interesting is because it's a submission for an an award, this is them with an open opportunity to give their best shot at describing what they do. So, it's not a brochure. It's not their website. It's it's actually their own submission, and they've got complete freedom of choice as to how they describe what they do. And I routinely see, you know, the statements which are just predictable, generic claims around, you know, customer service and quality and experience of team and you know, technological superiority and all these sorts of things. And the reality is in the customer's mind that just they're they're the minimum chip to get to the table, to even get my attention and for me to consider doing business with you, I expect you to have all of those things. So, (laughs) you you, you know – the, the, you're absolutely right, and w- we hammer this really hard. It's something that we that we have very robust discussions with, you know, with customers and other people about because they'll defend that they really do do it better, they really do do customer service better, or they really do have a technological advantage, or whatever it may be. And how you unpick that, how you disassemble that, and how you actually find the way, and to your point, the language to describe that. In a way that resonates with the customer, and the customer understands that point of difference, and it has to be a has to be a sustainable point of difference. It has to be something that you can compete heavily on. You can go hard with marketing investment. So, you know, marketing is simply the magnification of what you do, both good and bad. So, before you you know are saying to people who are going to invest in your business, we need X amount of money earmarked for marketing you need to absolutely understand what you're going to say and to who and how that is different from everybody else in the market. And from my perspective, if I was investing in a business, I wouldn't earmark any money for marketing unless those, ans- those, those questions could be answered with, with, with absolute clarity. and it's really difficult that you know, it's not an easy thing to do because it's very easy to just you know uh, mimic and ape the things that everyone else is, is saying. <laughs> and there's no point of difference in that. so why would you bother saying it and more importantly, why would you, why would you pay to say it through marketing?
0: And people use that marketing language, like best in class service, or we have like, it's such a BS, everybody has best in class service. Everybody, you know, you're not offering anything different and, and you're not selling the features. You're, I run a workshop here with uh, local founders where one of the workshops we do is working on your elevator pitch and I tell them, you know, don't sit here and list your features. Nobody cares about your features, your elevator pitch to be one, two sentences really quick. And then to turn the conversation to the other party to get them interested. So I tell them that it should be like, like there's a formula. We help customers or clients, potential clients with pain points, list two or three of your like biggest pain points and then buy and then how how you solve that problem. Not what features you have, but how you solve that. And so that I find that that's, when you start speaking like that, when you change your mind and you understand how you're actually helping your potential customers, then you're able to convey that message much more clear and much better. And it needs to be
1: in the customer's language. We find the value of um, conducting in-depth customer interviews, not to test their appetite for particular features, not to test their customer satisfaction or net promoter score, Most market research we find is directed at areas that are interesting but they don't answer the questions that you just posed there. The skill in being able to engage with a customer to get them to talk about the problems as they see them in their business day or you know, the the whatever problem it is that you're trying to solve, what impact that has on them, what it's like when it works, what it like what it's like when it doesn't work. And being able to engage with that customer in a way that is non judgmental and gets them to continue talking about that issue. After a while, you start to pick up a language pattern. There's a rhythm to the issues that they're talking about. There's a way that they describe it. There's a particular impact. And that can only happen when there's really deep trust between whoever's doing the interview and the customer. And after a while, you assemble a different set of insights around how the customer sees your product or how they see that solution how they want that presented, the sorts of things that matter to them. And depending on what the product or service is that you're selling, there's very often an invisible buying committee. There's different people who can influence that and they're only really interested in that thing that affects them. So I think that you know being able to unpick a value proposition in the first instance is, is critical, but then finding the right language to influence each person who can influence that buying decision and finding ways to communicate to them in their language to your point where you're not talking about product features and benefits, there's not just a laundry list of things. There's not just a laundry list of buzzwords about best in class service or something like that. That there's a like a very clear articulation of what you do, how you do it, why it's different, what benefits they can expect from that, and then proof points. You know, like you said, some examples. Here's an example where we recently did a project for client X. This was the benefit, this was the net uptake, this was the you know, improve time to competence with their staff or this was the reduced data days or finding those proof points and building off those is a much more compelling way to talk about features and benefits. Absolutely.
0: This is also one of the reasons what you were just saying is getting the feedback from the customers. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important for the founders at the beginning to be part of the sales process, at the very least, be part of the sales process if they're not doing the sales So that they could hear that feedback and they could understand what the clients are thinking and how they view your product.
1: I agree. Founders absolutely should be involved in sales in the early stages and continued, I think, with the major clients and major opportunities. Founders tend to have a natural ability, natural intuition in that sales space because they're building something to satisfy a group of customers and a a group of customers' needs. Where it gets challenging is putting that on scale. So once you start employing salespeople, once you start uh, engaging a marketing engine, how do you get that insight built into the system and how do you go back to the customer and make sure you're getting valid customer feedback as opposed to, quite simply, net promoter scores and customer satisfaction and these types of things, you need to be still able to dig into the customer's needs, their daily issues and opportunities, and build and develop your product in response to that.
0: You said before about invisible buyers yes, being part of the process and stuff. What did you mean by that?
1: The space we work in is primarily B2B, so very often, although the user of the product may be in a particular division. They may be in HR or sales or operations or somewhere else. The number of people influencing that buying decision are across operations and IT and risk and other areas. So although you might have a really excited customer who says, in the division says, yeah, that's great. I, I would love to use that. It looks fantastic. Very often the obstacles that come up to that are from another part of the business. So what we look at is how can you say, for example, or use some relatively simple and common examples, how do you prove to the IT department that the product that you're introducing isn't going to introduce risk into their system how can you give them the confidence that they need in other parts of the business they might want to know that if they're going to invest in a new piece of technology how can they have certainty around the longevity of that business given it might be in startup phase and it might be a small business with you know limited staffing and you know limited funding and you know still operating out of a you know a small rented space or something like that so that invisible buying committee is anybody who can influence that buying decision for you positively or negatively how do you unpick the specific needs and problems that they're trying to solve in their business day and the things that they're trying to avoid. And you know, IT and risk is a good example. And how do you manage those communications across the different buyers inside the organization? So they're really only hearing the message that's relevant to them.
0: Okay, so so taking it back a couple of questions, when you were t- talking about getting feedback from the clients, your already existing clients and getting like sitting down with them and asking questions. Are these the kind of things that you're you're asking is who else was involved with the process? Who else is using the product?
1: Yes, exactly. So for example, the education software that we were talking about earlier, it's a good example that for that particular piece of software to to be used, it also needed another teacher to participate in a 360 degree feedback piece. So there needed to be another person in there. And one of the issues in the school system had nothing to do with the software, nothing to do with the quality of the software and everything about the availability of that extra person to participate in that process. So again, it's one of those things, unless you actually sit inside the customer's shoes and ask them about what obstacles may get in the way of them implementing something like that. Very often they say, look, it's actually got nothing to do with the software and it's really our system. We don't have another teacher who can come here and do that to make this work. It looks fantastic. We love it. You've built a really, really beautiful product. And again, the only way you can get those insights is from talking to the customer in a way that is different from trying to measure satisfaction or test new features and benefits against them. And to your point earlier around the founder really staying with their finger on the pulse in that market and really understanding those changes because those subtle changes in the market, subtle changes in the way people are engaging with the product or issues they're having with with, with the product aren't going to be solved through a technical lens or a marketing lens or a sales lens. They're going to be solved through a completely different lens, which is really digging into that customer and then retooling the business around being attentive to that issue. It's, difficult to do on scale. And as the founder, if the business starts to grow and they get some traction and the founder gets drawn into other things, it's very difficult sometimes for them to stay that connected to the customer. So it's essential that they find a way in the business to gear the sales and marketing team on those customer insights as opposed to just the the, the flip side, which is you know we're going to gear sales on you know, revenue and customer acquisition. We're going to gear marketing on cost per reach or something like that there needs to be a really clear focus from the founders to say that the things, the insights and that they had around that market when they first started it and the things that they saw and the the level of investment they made in understanding that market has to be hardwired and hard-coded into that business. So it's a constant part of its evolution and growth. Otherwise, it, it will lose touch with its customers. Somebody else will understand them better and somebody else will take that market share.
0: Yeah, I, it's really important to- you know, and if, if you're a founder and you don't have the time now, you've, you've grown bigger and you've had, you've got a salesperson. This is why it's so important to have leadership available to, to train the salespeople to, to actually be salespeople, not just order takers. Because yes. all of these questions that you were, you were speaking about, a good salesperson will start to uncover by asking them those questions and digging deep with the, in the qualification period of the relationship
1: yeah and that's a really really big gap that we see in a lot of businesses is the linkage between the insights and efforts or focus of the marketing and when i when i say marketing we're talking about these market insights as opposed to the marketing engine there's there's a gap that we see in the communication of that through to the sales team the the training the support the segmentation information the skill development required to be able to have those different types of conversations and to be able to dig for those those insights and understand which segment a customer might fit in in terms of their buying behaviour, and what are the things that they need to understand. So, recruiting people who have got those skills and and naturally, or have been trained in those skills, is expensive. And training people to do that is expensive. But it's more expensive not to do it. And I know that sounds like <laughs> a throwaway statement, but the reality is that if you, that, like I say, in the B2B space that we that that we operate in, unless you're prepared to invest in those things, and it's it's a combination of of, you know, good quality recruitment and making sure you're getting the right people on board who can do these types of things, but then building the framework and tools that they need so they can be successful, and not just gearing them on the thing which is the final goal, which is the um, final measure, which is revenue.
0: Yeah all right, so let's start wrapping things up. out of what we talked about or something that we haven't touched on, what do you think is the most important thing an early stage founder should uh, be keeping in mind in front of mind?
1: The most important thing is that, that they really need to be willing to invest in the time and effort of understanding the market and market size with numbers that would pass muster by a third party. So their own belief and energy and enthusiasm for something may not be sufficient to secure funding. They need to be willing to go and dig and find those numbers and assemble a um, a business case which would be compelling to a dispassionate third party. And when I say that we large number of private equity investors who have got a very short term view of the business that they're working in, they have no emotional connection to it the way the founder might. And they're really just looking for the commercial sense and return on investment in, in investing in that business. And sound numbers that you can back and prove and provide the evidence base for is a much more compelling thing than saying, I really believe in this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. A couple of questions to wrap things up. What's your favorite tool that you use on a daily basis for to help businesses with their sales or with their strategy?
1: That's a really, really great question. I would have to say that it sounds like a really strange one, but it's actually LinkedIn. And the reason I say that is that LinkedIn is a really good bridge between sales and marketing. Although LinkedIn has changed dramatically over the last know a few years i've been on sort of linkedin for about 10 years when you work with the sales team and you walk them through how they can use something like linkedin intelligently and how they can use their own linkedin profile and connect with the linkedin company profile to distribute content that might be created through the marketing lens you can actually use linkedin as a trojan horse to join the dots between sales and marketing. So instead of it being an adversarial or even hostile relationship as it can be sometimes that you can actually build a really good central ground for both people to play a meaningful role in the digital distribution of content and engagement with key customers.
0: Yeah, great. It's a favorite amongst salespeople and everyone as well too. So what's your favorite book for for business strategy and everything that we've been talking about today?
1: I honestly couldn't limit it to one. There is one of my favorites is actually a very, it's a book that's probably the most dog-eared book on my bookshelf. And it's a book by Guy Kawasaki and it's called Selling the Dream and it's about evangelism and he talks about how he used evangelism to launch the first round of um, apple computers when he was working at apple but selling the dream is a really interesting book because it he does a deep dive analysis of the Owners group mothers against drink driving and a whole range of other groups and institutions who have got a huge following and have, have have been able to build a brand and a successful following around a cause. So I think although it's not a strictly an academic strategy book, it gets to the core of how do you build a, a, a following around your brand that supersedes logic, that supersedes just the features and benefits. It's a fantastic read and if you can still get it, it's worth reading. Absolutely.
0: All right, how can people reach out to you and if they wanna talk to you or reach out to your business?
1: The best thing to do is really just log on to our website, www.evetfield, that's dot com. That provides good information on who we are and what we do. And we'd be delighted to hear from any of your listeners and help them in any way that we can.
0: Okay, and I'll put a link in, in the show notes for that and also to your LinkedIn profile. Perfect. Great. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at Adam at startupsales.io.